We'll return this morning to our studies in the book of 2 Corinthians. I would ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Before we read and look at the text, I just want to say something about the way that sometimes we tend to merge Paul's letters into one another. And we tend to read one of them um, uh, in the light of uh, situations and concerns and uh, issues that are present, perhaps not in the church that he's writing to, but in other churches that he's written to before. One of the things we saw when we studied the book of Galatians is Paul had a memorable controversy with the church of Galatia, with the churches of Galatia, that after he had come and preached the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, others had come and preached another gospel. And the other gospel that they were proclaiming was the gospel that taught that unless you be um, circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you can't be saved. And Paul addresses that uh, along the lines of uh, speaking about the way that we are justified before God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He addresses that in terms of the contrast uh, between obedience to law and uh, faith in Christ. And so the contrast there really are between circumcision and, 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 and faith, between grace and works, uh, between law and gospel. And that is a great um, con- conflict he had uh, and, conti- and had in other places as well. When he came back to um, a- 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 I'm sorry, Antioch, Antioch in Syria, after the first missionary journey, there were those that came and taught the disciples similarly. We read about that in Acts 14 and 15 in the head of the Jerusalem Council to settle the matter. Must the Gentiles be circumcised? And because that's a, a question that took up so much of his attention and his concern, and is such a prominent letter in the Pauline letters, uh, we might think every time Paul had a problem <laughs> with uh, people, uh, must have been Judaizers that came among them. Um, maybe so, but maybe not. Um, well, I think the Corinthian letter sometimes is understood as if the super apostles that are mentioned in the chapters uh, 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 10 and following, the um, uh, people that came to Corinth with, uh, he says, another spirit, another Jesus, another gospel, were basically doing the same thing that the people were doing in Galatia. However, there's no mention of circumcision in this letter. Um, there's only one mention of circumcision in the first letter, and that's where he draws the contrast between um, uh, your calling, abide in the calling with which you were called. If you were called in circumcision, don't seek to be uncircumcised. I don't know exactly how you do that, but don't seek to at least hide the reality of your circumcision. If you're uncircumcised, don't look to get circumcised. If you're a slave, don't look to get free. If you're free, free, uh, remember you're a slave of, of Christ. And uh, he's speaking about the, the, the state in which we were called um, to be, be content and serve God in that capacity. But there was no circumcision versus faith issue there. There was no law grace issue. There was no gospel law issue. There was um, nothing such as we see in the Galatian letter. At least there's no evidence of it. Um, turn, if you will, to the back of your Bibles, if you have a map. 
of the journeys of the Apostle Paul. And I want you to note where the churches of Galatia were, at least geographically, in reference to the city of Corinth. Um, if you could look at the Mediterranean and go perhaps in the middle of the Mediterranean, to the right of the island of Crete, if you see that, you'll see uh, Rhodes, um, at least in my Bible, that's made prominent. And you come to the coast of uh, what is modern-day Turkey, that whole landmass there is modern-day Turkey, you would see that the cities of Galatia are in the eastern part of Turkey. Um, well, maybe more middle, but Middle East, middle to the east. Uh, you have Cilicia is the province uh, where you find Derby, And if you look a little bit to the north of Derby, you'll see Iconium and Lystra. Those are the areas of Galatia that Paul preached in his first missionary journey. You'll see sometimes Galatia goes all the way up to the north and you have the controversy between the southern Galatian theory and the northern Galatian theory. I don't know to what extent we dealt with that issue. With the churches of Galatia, the churches he planted on the first missionary journey, I think that's what it was. It was early on in his ministry that they had this problem with the churches of Galatia and the Lord race issue. But notice the, the, the geographic uh, 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 expanse that exists between that region of Galatia where Paul preached on his first missionary journey and the area of Corinth that he came to on his second missionary journey. Remember Paul uh, went through that region of Galatia on the second missionary journey and then he proceeded um, westward and uh, the Spirit told him not to go into Asia uh, told him not to go uh, in a southerly direction either, but rather he went to the coast in Troas. And in Troas he received the vision of the Macedonian man to come over and help us. So Paul boarded a ship, he crossed the uh, Aegean, he came uh, first to Philippi uh, in the northern part of uh, um, the Greek peninsula, uh, that's Greece, that's there, modern Greece. You have Turkey uh, to the east, and Greece is the landmass that's there to the west, where you have Macedonia and Achaia, are the two major provinces that Paul ministered in. And, and so you see the distance between the Galatians and the Corinthians. And uh, you ask yourself the question, do these people who were so zealous for the law, uh, who uh, uh, caused the problem in Galatia, did, did they travel all that way? to follow Paul's steps? Well, they may have, but we have no um, evidence that they did. And it may well have been that Paul's problem with the Corinthian churches that are reflected here in the false apostles, the super apostles that came to Corinth, was something of a homegrown product, or there could have been people that came among them from outside, but not necessarily. Did they come from Jerusalem, or were they Jewish necessarily? I mean, they may have been. But again, I don't think there's clear evidence that they were. And that the major problem with the false teachers at Corinth is that they had weighed and evaluated the Corinthian mentality in such a way as to provide a gospel for them that was very attractive. Just the problem with the, Corinth, with the church at Corinth that Paul had with them, remember in the first letter, we said the problem was not so much uh, they had some kind of theological uh, thing. It was their culture. 
It was to be Corinthianized. It was to become like the culture in which they lived that prized human wisdom in terms of philosophy, that prized uh, great preaching and teaching and rhetoric orators that would present truth in compelling and fascinating ways. And uh, Paul's addressing uh, the fact that there were those at Corinth that gravitated towards what they thought were the greatest preachers in the world. Look at dynamic they were. Look at Apollos. Some say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And of course, Apollos, uh, you learn from uh, the book of Acts, was a, was a learned orator. He spoke the word of God powerfully. That was very attractive among um, the Corinthians. So Paul came with kind of a rough speech, as it were, and weakness and fear and much trembling. He speaks about my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but a demonstration of the spirit and of power. And it seems to me it's this contrast between the Greek idea of leadership and the the biblical idea of leadership or the biblical idea of what constitutes the power of God and the wisdom of God were miles apart. Um, And the gospel does not pass muster from a Greek concept of what human philosophy would entail. It comes as a message that the Greeks would think of as foolishness. And oratory amongst Christians should not be something of this dynamic thing that's just going to make everybody cringe and everybody <laughs> become persuasive, persuaded because of the way in which you teach and you preach. Um, there ought to be something of a plainness in the speech of God's people with one another. And again, we live in a day that doesn't so much prize plainness of speech. We look at uh, speech that will uh, fascinate us and entertain us, cause us to giggle. It's the uh, it's the slickness of the of the of the uh, talk show hosts and of the uh, comfortable presentations that you see on television, um, on late night TV, or perhaps in uh, talk shows. That uh, we want those sort of things to be in the ministers of the gospel today. That. Uh, uh, we, we, we will relate to. Our culture influences uh, what we like and what we don't like, what we'll hear and not hear. And the Corinthians were no different. They were influenced by their culture. And one of the things that they didn't like about Paul was here's a man who not only, his speech is contemptible, his presence is not strong, is not the sort of thing that you'd see in the philosophers and the rhetoricians of the age, uh, but also look at all the troubles he's gone through. Look at all the suffering and the problems that he's gone through. Now, would God permit his apostle to go through this sort of thing? And, and it's, that's, it's that kind of... Um, uh, presentation that these false teachers were making that made some of the Corinthians question uh, whether Paul was someone they should really view as highly as they once had. He was their apostle. He was the one that founded the church. He said, you have many teachers in Christ, but I am your father in Christ. I begat you through the gospel. And um, there were these things that were being said about Paul that made people question. And Paul's writing to gain the hearts of the people. He's writing to win them back to himself um, in a manner that would just present where true power is to be seen in the gospel, which is not in uh, how the Greek culture views it, but it's power that is manifest in weakness. And my strength is made manifest in weakness, God said to Paul when he when he cried to God for three times that the thorn in the flesh would be removed from him. And God didn't remove it. 
Because Paul want, God wanted to cripple Paul to go to Corinth in weakness and fear and much trembling. That the people's faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God's going to display his power in the midst of human weakness, even as he did on the cross. The message of the cross is one who came in weakness, one who submitted himself to the Roman authorities, crucified and died, was, and, and, and died for us. Uh, he didn't take up the sword and combat his enemies as the Roman um, uh, generals would do. Jesus conquers through humility, coming in the form of a servant, made in the likeness of man, taking his place with um, the the riffraff of the world, uh, not with the great ones of the world. You see, you're calling, brethren, not many mighty after the flesh, not many noble. God's taken the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God's way of doing things is so very much different. It's... Uh, it's um, Life in the, in, 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 that comes through death, comes through the death of the Son of God. Uh, we die to sin that we might live to righteousness. Uh, death uh, precedes resurrection, that we're raised with Christ. And, and so the whole, the gospel is of a completely different, um, um, not only kind of message, but it, it, it demands a different kind of ministry. It, it, it demands a man like Paul, who himself was crucified to the things of this world, who died with Christ that he might rise with Christ, who carried about in his own body the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in him. Uh, Having this treasure in jars of clay, again, that the excellency of the power might be seen to be of God. And that's the theme of of the letter, throughout the letter. Paul's going back to those themes over and over and over again. Uh, God's power is manifested in weakness. Life in the midst of death. Um, Glory um, that comes out of uh, uh, what in this world seems shameful. And yet it brings the glory of God to bear in the hearts and minds of his people. So you have all these contrasts between those things throughout the letter. Of course, we saw the contrast between Old and New Covenant, uh, the letter and the Spirit. And Paul has received a ministry uh, of the Spirit and uh, his sufficiency in that ministry, he says, comes from God. And having spoken of that ministry of the Spirit, uh, the ministry of glory that comes through um, the ministry of the Spirit, as we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and uh, not just the apostles but all of the believers were being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another where chapter 3 ends Paul takes up that note in chapter 4 and verse 1 again applying the reality of the gospel that brings glory um, to those that uh, have no glory of their own and it comes from Christ and um, the transforming work that meets us in the midst of, of human weakness in which the power of God is made manifest. Uh, Paul takes up the subject of the gospel once again in terms of the ministry of the gospel in which he, which he has been given. I think I pointed out to you before, the, the message and the ministry and the man are all connected together. They should be consistent with one another. It shouldn't be that the gospel message that comes in, in human weakness uh, is, uh, is being uh, conveyed and portrayed by the proud of, uh, in heart. Uh, again, 
proud people preach the gospel and they do it accurately and well. Uh, again, Paul says in the Philippian letter, nevertheless, Christ is preached. And so he's happy. But generally speaking, the proud alter the message. They tamper with the message. They, they make the message to be consistent with who and what they are. And, and again, Paul's going to reference that in this section that opens up chapter 4. Again, the ministry, the message, and the man, it really does all have to fall together. And so Paul says, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 1, Therefore, in the light of this work of God in conforming us to the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another in the midst of a, of a, of a ministry of the Spirit, he says, Therefore, having this ministry, this ministry of life, this ministry of the Spirit, Um, He says, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, like the old translation better, it's really the hidden things of shame. That's more literally what Paul's talking about, the hidden things of shame. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. Again, another kind of man with a different kind of sense of what ministry is about is going to tamper with the word. Why? He's looking to sell it. He's looking to sell a product for his own gain, his own advantage. Remember he said it earlier on, we're not as the many who make merchandise of the word of God. Um, if you're making merchandise of the word of God, if the, if the, if the, if the, the word of God is, is something to be sold, if it's something to trade in, uh, you're going to alter it in order to, be, uh, to, to sell it better. Uh, to advertise it in, the, in ways that would be more towards human, um, you know, what human desires are, what human consumption will allow for. But he says, um, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled in those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is opening up what he said in, uh, earlier on in the first letter. He says, we plant, and uh, I plant in Apollos' waters, it's God that gives the increase. Uh, Paul and Apollos are nothing. It's all of God. And this is an exposition of that reality. It's not the strength of Paul's personality. It's not the charisma of his gifts. It's the power of the living God that does the work. Luther said of himself and Melanchthon that we drank German beer together and God's word did the work. Again, American Christians don't appreciate that. You have to be European to appreciate that. Um, They were basically saying we set God's word uh, ablaze in the world and God's word did the work. Though all the worlds with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure one little word shall fell him. It's the word of God that will fell him. It's the word of God that will win the victory and the triumph. 
And so Paul goes back to the fact of his ministry as a minister of the new covenant that's uh, of the spirit, not of the letter. He says, by God's mercy, we do not lose heart. And the reference to losing heart, again, is, uh, is, is the tendency in the hearts of people uh, trafficking in the gospel in a fallen world just to say, why bother? Let's just give up. We're just not going to win this, 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 this work. Uh, it's too hard. This region is too hard. These people are too hard. Uh, it's un, un, uh, you know, what are we going to do with the problem of human unbelief? And Paul knew what that was. He went to Corinth where he knew there was nothing in the Corinthians that were, was going to make them give him a hearing. And you remember God had to come to him in, 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 in the night vision and say to him, Paul, don't fear. I am with you. I have many people in this city. And it encouraged him to preach on. And Paul knew the reality of that. He knew that uh, though this gospel was was a stumbling block to the Jew, it was foolishness to the Greek, uh, that uh, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God to those that are called. And God is in the business of calling sinners to himself through the gospel proclamation. And so we don't lose heart because we're not going to fail. We're not in a losing enterprise. We're part of this triumphal procession that he spoke about earlier in chapter 2 which God is the head of and Christ is the head of they're leading this triumphal procession and we're in the back as captive slaves endeavoring to be incense spreading the word of God which is, which is life unto life and to those that are saved and it's uh, death unto death to those that perish but that's Paul's picture of himself a captive slave bringing the ministry of God's word to a needy world, following in triumphal procession the God who wins the victory. And so we don't lose, and we don't lose heart. He says, but we've renounced disgraceful underhanded ways and I mentioned before I think the old translation is better it it really literally is like the hidden things of shame the hidden things of shame and we've renounced it and I rather think when you first to the hidden things of shame in the context of this communion and fellowship we have with God through the gospel we all with open face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord what do we do do we run from it? We see this glory of the Lord. Do we see our shame exposed as Adam and Eve did in the garden and run in fear? I think that's what Paul's saying. He's saying we're not like those to whom this glory of God revealed in the gospel simply reveals our shame and leads us to run away. It's provided reconciliation with God. Is provided covering for our sins. This is a gospel that in the mercy of God has covered us and cleansed us and brought us forgiveness and brought us union with Christ through the gospel so we can behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and see God in the face of Christ and not flee, not run away in shame, but run towards that vision, run towards that glory. 
So we don't allow the hidden things of shame to hinder us in our ministry. And then he says also we refuse to practice cunning. We're not deceitful. Nor do we tamper with God's word. Again, our, our desire is not to trick people into faith. To present things that uh, are untruths. Tell the world, if you trust in Jesus, all your problems are over. God's going to be the co-pilot in your life. He's going to lead you in every area of life to prosperity and health and wealth and everything that's good. Now, Paul never did that. He told the churches that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He didn't practice cunning. He didn't tamper with God's word. But rather it was by the open statement of the truth. He says we will commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I think this idea of commending himself to every man's conscience in the sight of God hooks up with what he said earlier about requiring letters of commendation uh, to you or from you. We don't need that. We have everything we need to legitimize our apostolic calling in who you are as epistles of Christ. God's written it with the work of his spirit and hearts. Not on tables of stone, but the writing of God upon human hearts as God has internalized his law within the hearts and in the minds of his people. We simply bring the gospel message that's from God and trust that God will use it. God will bless it. That our commendation is not something that we... um, we bring because we've uh, we've um, what's the expression I'm thinking of thinking of an expression here but look we try to articulate it we're not looking to boost the resume we're not looking to say look look at who, who we are look at our earned degrees look at all the people in the world that say this is the apostle that you should listen to you know, we don't look to pad the resume We don't need to pad the resume. We're called of God to do this work. We're, 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 we've had this gospel committed to us by the living God. And our work is not to commend ourselves. Well, it is to commend ourselves, but not to promote ourselves. But it's to commend ourselves in every man's conscience in the sight of God by the word of the truth. And so he'll go on to say, we don't preach ourselves. That's the thing he denies doing. He says, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. Verse 5, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. That's who we are. We're servants of Christ. And we don't promote ourselves, we don't preach ourselves. Although we will we'll commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We seek to bring God's message that he will write it in your hearts and then you'll recognize the servants of Christ. You'll recognize the messengers of the gospel for who and what they are. And Paul knows not everybody's going to recognize that he's Christ's servant. Not everyone's going to recognize that he's an apostle called and sent by Christ. His concern is that the God will form a people through the gospel that will recognize his apostolic credentials. 
But he knows in a fallen world, it's, it's not going to be the majority. Not many of the mighty are called. Not many of the wise. Not many of the noble. There are some. God's people are usually among the riffraff of the world. A bunch of nobodies. But there's many who are rejected. And Paul's explanation of unbelief is expressed in the words of verse 3. He says, even if our gospel is veiled. And it will be veiled. It was veiled among the Jews. He mentions that in chapter 3. To this day, he says in 3 and verse 14, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. There's a veil upon their hearts. Again, just as Adam and Eve ran away from the glory of God's presence because of shame, so the people of Israel did not want to look upon the face of Moses where the glory of God was reflected. Moses had to put a veil over his face. And so the people of the world don't want this message of the glory of God any more than Adam and Eve did in the garden or any more than Israel did at Mount Sinai. It's a veil over their hearts. Our gospel is veiled. It's veiled to those who are perishing. Again, that present tense understanding of what it is to be unbelieving. Those that have faith are being saved. Those that are lost are perishing. They're going from one state of rebellion and sin and going from bad to worse. It's a continual process of uh, destruction within the heart and mind of an unbeliever. Even as there's a state of increasing light and glory in the heart of the believer, there's the present tense perishing and the present tense being saved. And if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God and again there's the picture of the glory of God that's revealed the glory of God that uh, again human sin will run from human sin will know they have no place in God's presence they want to be shielded from the glory of the living and the true God And the devil markets that fear and disposition in the hearts of people to keep them blind, to keep them hardened, to keep them at a distance from the things of God. Paul sees this as a matter of satanic um, activity in the minds of unbelieving people. Now, it doesn't mean that Satan is responsible for their unbelief. If there was no devil in the world, they still wouldn't believe. But Satan hardens their hearts and their minds. You, know, you think of the, the story that, that the, gospel, the Old Testament tells of Pharaoh. And you, know, you think how incomprehensible it would be that that guy needed ten plagues to finally get a message to release these captive slaves. How in the world did he not see it wasn't in his interest to remain unbelieving? And yet there is an activity of the devil that is loose in the world that will make people that hard-hearted and that dense. It's just underestimating the power of the devil to work in and through the hearts of people. But it's not that 
um, Satan blinded his mind when he was a seeing person. He was blind. It's not that it says God hardened his heart. It wasn't that his heart wasn't already hardened. It was already hardened. Think about five, five of the ten times or so, half the time it mentions Pharaoh's heart being hardened. It says he hardened his, his heart, and others say God hardened his heart. Well, God was planning to show his works in him. God was planning to show the fullness of his judgments in the case of Pharaoh. And if he had relented and, and, and let them go before the final plague, there's an aspect of the judgment of God and the power of God and the, the, um, the glory of God that would be shown forth that uh, would not have occurred. Um, but the, the point is that it's not that there are these uh, external factors uh, of God hardening or Satan blinding uh, that is uh, making people uh, just victims of supernatural powers that are at work around them. It's the reality of their own wickedness within. It's, the, it's not just the, the power of the, of, of the world to seduce and the power of the devil to tempt. It's the power of sin within their own hearts. There's the reality of the flesh that's fallen, the flesh that's rebellious, the carnal mind that does not receive the, the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to them, neither do they know them because they're spiritually discerned. Be it Satan operates within the framework of human unbelief uh, to keep them from seeing, to keep them from seeing. And what are they being kept from seeing? Well, they're kept from seeing the power of a new creation at work in the gospel of Jesus. Paul draws upon the language of the original creation of Genesis 1. Let there be light, and there was light. To speak of the reality of a new creation. He speaks of the light of the gospel, of the glory of God, who is the Im- uh, glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He speaks in verse 6, for the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Again, Genesis 1. The darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God commanded light to shine out of the darkness. That same God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But in the lives of the redeemed, there's been a re- renovation of their, their inner life. There's been a renewal of their minds and hearts to not reject that revelation and hate that revelation and run from that revelation, but to be drawn to that revelation, to be attracted by that revelation, to come to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there's receptivity and there's drawing near and not pulling away. The gospel is a gospel that bears in its teaching and in its impact upon the world the very real reality of the light of God dawning upon darkened human souls of that light of God being revealed to sinners as they behold in Christ the glory of God. He is the image of God. 
You know, we say something about the image of God in the morning worship is we'll be looking at uh, some of the uh, ramifications and the outflow of Jesus' words to Philip. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and do you not know me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You see me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. Again, not everybody that saw Jesus, at least physically, saw the Father. But again, it's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that comes through the gospel that awakens souls to that reality. There's a heavenly revelation that's given through the gospel that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that to see him... We've seen the Father. Have I been with you so long and don't you know me? If Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And the Father is working through the gospel, working through God's word, working through the word of Christ to bring people to see who Jesus really is. That he's the Christ of God. He's the son of the living God. And he's the image of the invisible God. Now the language of image of the invisible God can be taken in a couple of ways. When you think of image of the invisible God, what, 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 what comes to mind? Go ahead. Okay. Okay. The God you can't see, you can see in the person of Christ. But in terms of image of God, when you think of image of God, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Don't don't think humanity, right? Made in the image and likeness of God. What's that? Oh, you said that. You said man. Yeah, (laughs) mankind's made in the image and likeness of God. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. God created man, male and female, after his image and after his likeness. That's constantly predicated of humankind, being made in the image and likeness of God. And there is a certain sense in which the incarnation of Jesus is the incarnation of one who functions as the second Adam. He functions as the one who reveals, um, who fulfills what Adam was designed to be, to restore the world to its original divine intent in terms of, again, the language of a new creation. It may speak of Jesus in that precise way, that he is the image of God in the sense of being the second Adam. But the fact that he is also the pre-existent Lagos of John 1, the fact that he is um, the one who says he came from heaven and is going back from heaven. Again, Adam came from the hand of his creator, in terms of the work of the first creation. But here's one that comes from heavenly glory, who has pre-existence, who is eternal. He's one through whom the worlds were made. Um, Again, though in terms of Jesus' work in the world, what we call his missions, in the missions, you have the Son of God coming from the glory he had with the Father from the foundation of the world. I don't know how to do that except to say he descended from heaven. He came into this world from the Father. Um, it, the missions point to the reality that the one who comes to undertake that mission is one who is in a prior relationship to the Father in terms of the 
um, eternal existence, which oftentimes we call uh, ontology, which is just a, another word for existence. That Jesus existed with the Father as God, in oneness with his Father and the Spirit in the mystery of the Trinity. That this eternal relationship enters into time to bring something of a mirror of what eternal realities are. In other words, um, God's creation of Adam in the garden was not to fulfill some lack that he possessed. I don't know if you ever heard or read of the old or the um, the creation accounts of the of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and um, they had gods that uh, created because they were simply tired of doing the work that was they were doing in the in the uh, upholding of the world and so man was created to help the gods out. Because the gods were just simply tired of all the work they were doing. They were going to put the load upon humanity uh, to do what they didn't want to do anymore. Gods were lazy. <laughs> you know, many of these pagan gods were just really made in man's image. But um, God didn't create humankind to be supplying something he lacked in himself. He has no lack in himself. He's the perfect God who uh, has no need. Uh, we call that his, um, well, the technical word is aseity, that in himself there is perfection. In himself there is no lack. Um, and it's not to supply a lack in God that man's made in the image and likeness of God. It's rather for God himself to bring his fullness into human experience and existence. It's to share something of the reality of his blessedness. It's in love he made the world to be reflective of his loving heart that goes out from himself um, to others. And in the mystery of the Trinity, we find that outgoing of love in what we call the processions of the Father begetting the Son and the Son and Spirit and the Son and Father um, bringing the Spirit to proceed from the Father. Again, that's Trinitarian language that came in the 4th century. But it's meant to, it's meant to express something. It's meant to express the reality uh, of a God who needs nothing but gives everything. And so when God comes to a fallen world in a mission to restore and to restore those that are made in his image and likeness. He sends one who is in his image and likeness in terms of an eternal relationship. So the Son of God doesn't come into the world to be born of a virgin to begin imaging God. He imaged God eternally. There was an eternal relationship of imaging the Father. So when the Father beheld the Son, he didn't see something different from himself. He saw himself. He saw himself imaged in his son. As the son sees deity imaged in the father. And as the father and son sees deity imaged in the son. So God, Jesus doesn't start to be image of God through incarnation. But through incarnation we see the image of God. We behold the image of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. We see one who perfectly images the Father in eternal relationship of union and communion in the Godhead that enters into human experience to bring us back to God as the second Adam who restores us to the image of God by, by bringing us to behold the image of God in himself. We behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ who is the image of the invisible God. We'll say more about that this morning in this morning worship. Any questions about that? I, I, I don't know if that's too complicated to conceive of. Again, it's Trinitarian truth that is in and of itself mind-bending. But uh, I think that's how we're supposed to conceive of it. That the image didn't of Jesus imaging the Father didn't begin when he came into the world. And now it says, now I'm an image to, to others. No, he imaged the Father perfectly in that inter-Trinitarian relationship. But uh, again, it's a question of uh, the fact of the missions often imaging this eternal existence or reflecting it. Anyway, it's my attempt to return to uh, discussions about the Trinity. (laughs) And you get a little bit more of that in the morning worship. So again, the, the power of the gospel is not resident in the, in the ministers of the gospel. They're but agents. They're just means through which God brings his, wor- his word to the world, a word that in and of itself would fall on deaf ears. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. How do you penetrate that? How do you penetrate human unbelief in and of itself, which is sort of... Uh, Impenetrable. People just are filled with the spirit of slumber and stupor. I mean, we, 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 call, we call revivals awakenings. You've got to get awake to the reality of things you're asleep to. Uh, it's, it's the reality that people in sin uh, just are not receptive at all to the things of the gospel. And then Satan is, comes into the picture and he brings an extra reinforcement of steel and impenetrable obstacles in the way so that the blindness becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. How do you penetrate that? You can't. I can't and Paul couldn't. But God can It's the God who calls light to shine in the midst of the darkness. It's a work of new creation. That's what's here. That's what Paul says must be done. So, you know, you can be the weakest person in the world through whom God works. And God delights to work through weak people. He says we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's going to go on to say in verse 7 that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Look at us, we're a bunch of afflicted people in every way. Perplexed and persecuted and struck down and carrying about in the body the death of Jesus. That's who we are in and of himself, ourselves. It's only God who can keep us from total despair. It's only God can keep, who can keep us from being crushed 
from being destroyed. It's only God who can give us life to continue on so that by His mercy we have this ministry that doesn't bring us to lose but brings us to be in that triumphal procession. Spreading the incense of His gospel through which God works the work of new creation. God calls people in the midst of the depth of darkness impenetrable to bring them to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So again, Paul's not just bringing us a theology of conversion that sees God as sovereign in conversion, though that's clearly there. But Paul's telling us about the ministry. He's telling us about the kind of men God uses in ministry. And he's telling us that all this takes place in the midst of weakness and neediness and everything in, 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 in terms of human sufficiency that's, that's bankrupt and barren. But in the midst of all that, God works. In the midst of all that, God brings the light of his knowledge in Christ to the hearts and minds of blinded, perishing sinners. And so all the glory belongs to him. All the honor belongs to him. Well, we'll move on, God willing, next week through the treasures and earthen vessels and through the description Paul gives of his sufferings. But I just want to just underscore again that there is a tremendous degree of unity in this letter. And that's why I've been trying to just go back and forth from you know, things we've already stated and things that are here. Uh, because Paul's giving this unified argument um, that the message, the man, and the ministry must be consistent. And um, so we see that the message, the, me- the people, and the ministry that were given is consistent because that's what takes human pride out of the picture, it takes human glory out of the picture. And it puts the spotlight again upon the God who raises the dead. Well, let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time in the scriptures. and This is a rich letter, and Lord, I don't profess to understand it in all of its fullness, but I pray that you'd give us increasing light as we wend our way through the teaching of 2 Corinthians, that we might rejoice in the knowledge of a God who gives life to the dead, that we might rejoice in the reality of the power of a new creation and the reality of a God who um, brings the blessings of your grace and salvation to a lost and a needy world. So be pleased to hear our prayers. Be pleased to bless us as your people as we greet one another this morning. And as we enter into the morning hour of worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.